Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. The most important development in the United States labor movement in at least two decades is the teacher strike wave. That wave started in Chicago in 2012 when the Chicago Teachers Union, led by a group of leftist and militant unionists that took over the union in 2010, went on strike against austerity. And incredibly, they won. I wrote a book about it called Strike for America, Chicago Teachers Against Austerity. And then last year, the strikes kicked off in West Virginia, and then all of a sudden they were everywhere. Oklahoma, Arizona, Kentucky, Louisiana, California, Colorado, Washington. And that's not even the full list. That's like half the states where teachers have gone on strike since last year. This is an incredible development that could spell a massive change in the fortunes of organized labor in this country. And nobody has covered that strike wave closer than Eric Blanc, who has a new book out in the Jacobin series from Verso called Red State Revolt, The Teacher's Strikes and Working Class Politics. Now, obviously, I'm a little biased here, but I have to say, this book is absolutely incredible. It is a more in-depth portrait of not just one strike, but three of them, than anything that I am aware of that's been published in years And it's written by somebody who was there on the ground in all of these places and interviewed over 100 teachers and had access to their Facebook groups and text messages. And it's just an incredible document with an incredible number of lessons for other kinds of labor struggles uh, around the country. There's so much to dig into in the book that Eric and I talked for a very long time, so we decided to split our discussion into two episodes. This one focuses on how the strike wave came about, why material deprivation of workers isn't enough to convince workers to go on strike, the role of social media, the myth of the hopelessly reactionary red staters, and other topics. The second episode, which will be out soon, focuses on the role that socialists and the broader militant minority played in kicking off these strikes and what opportunities radicals can have in the labor movement today. Eric, hello. Yep. So I'm very glad to have you on this show. It's kind of funny. You and I have both written books for the Jacobin series about the recent teacher strikes. And I decided recently, like uh, like two years ago, that I had written about the, the labor and I wanted to go and take a little bit of time and like actually sit down and, and think about things that are going on in the contemporary labor movement and historically. And so uh, I decided I was going to go to graduate school for one year. And I was like, it's going to take some time to think about these things. And then I went from 2017 to 2018. And of course, in the middle of that time, that was when uh, the teacher strikes or the, the teacher strike wave popped off. Uh, yeah, you blew it. I blew it. You could have been, you could have been there. Well, you missed that. luckily, uh, you were there and did a far better job than I would have in actually uh, covering this stuff. And you've done so in this book, which I, I don't want to be too effusive about, but I really think that this is just an incredible book that you have uh, put together that should be studied by like young socialist uh, activists who are interested in the labor movement, as well as rank and file teachers and rank and file workers of all kinds. It's really like a book that is chock full of stuff uh, for those people to figure out how to fight back and, and win on the, on the job around the country. So congrats to you on writing an amazing book. Um, so you cover in the book the uh, red state strike wave. So you were on the ground in West Virginia uh, in Arizona, 
uh, and in Oklahoma. And you've been on the ground in other strikes, uh, the teacher strikes since then. But your book focuses on those three uh, red states. So I want to talk about uh, first just how these strikes came to be and what was their importance. So let's start with that second question. It's a pretty basic one, but one that is important to get right. Why do these strikes matter? Yeah, the big story is that our side, you know, the working class has been getting decimated in a one-sided class war for like four decades. And part of the reason for that is that the labor movement has been oriented overwhelmingly to just lobbying the Democrats instead of doing things like striking. And so part of the reason this uh, recent uptick in strikes is so important is that it poses an alternative to what has been really the status quo in labor. And it poses a type of challenge to really the reigning neoliberalism that has uh, been imposed by both Democrats and Republicans. It's the highest number of strikes we've seen since 1986, almost half a million workers on strike, overwhelmingly educators. So yeah, this is a really big deal. I think it poses a political alternative to really the a discredited status quo. You wrote uh, maybe about a year ago, a piece uh, about the sort of strikes showing why the working class is a the change agent that socialists orient themselves towards. Can you explain that in the context of these strikes? Yeah, I mean, this used to be really a kind of a commonplace on the left, but maybe since the 60s or 70s with the decline of labor, people really were looking towards alternative types of actions, alternative sources of social protests than the organized working class, which is understandable given that there wasn't that much going on, unfortunately. But I think the history in the negative sense and more recently in the positive sense has shown that the ability of working people to change the world is higher than any other really segment of the population because we can leverage our ability to stop production, whether it's in the public sector or private sector, to force either employers or the state to listen to us. And that just gives us a dynamic of power that really no other sector of the population has. So, yeah, I I mean, I think that if we don't build an organized labor movement that's fighting, it's very hard to win things like Green New Deal, Medicare for All, or even continue the mass socialist movement that's arising. So can you talk about that in the context of these strikes? Because I think a lot of people would understand, okay, it's kind of a truism, right? That the strike is the most powerful weapon that working people have. Working people have a lot of power in society because society runs on the labor of the working class. But can you just talk about what, what that looked like in these red states that where you were covering these strikes? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, just thinking about these as purely educator strikes or teacher strikes is a misnomer because there's no way they would have succeeded without the participation and active support of both students and really parents. Uh, because of the, the nature of shutting down the schools is such that it creates a real crisis for um, both students and parents, but like, well, where do you go? What do you do with your kids? You know, do I go to work? Uh, do I stay at home with the students? You know, what happens? There's a whole kind of chain reaction of shutting down schools that ripples across society. So, you know, working class families don't have the money to just pay for childcare or to not uh, go to work. And so this in turn means that you have thousands, tens of thousands, uh, in aggregate, hundreds of thousands of students who are creating a social crisis because somebody needs to care for them. And that type of 
crisis situation can be leveraged either against teachers by the right wing or it can be leveraged against the state because they can't just uh, not have somewhere to be, right? And so then the question is, who's going to cave first, whether it'll be the state or uh, the strikers? And that's really, I think, the big drama of any public sector strike is where the public sec- where the public itself is going to turn its anger. If you go on strike and you create that crisis for students and their families, you can you you have their attention certainly, and you can either draw uh, those those people who are affected that strike can draw from that action anger towards you for disrupting their lives in this way, or they can say this you know the, the central institution of my life and the people who make it run every day uh, are fighting not only for themselves but for for me and everybody else in my community right like it it, it could it either goes in a, in a direction of the entire working class rallying behind you or it can turn the entire working class against you for uh, taking that kind of action it depends on what the political content of what you're doing is I think as a as a teacher or as a, any kind of worker going on strike yeah, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, and that's why, A, a lot of teachers were reluctant to strike in the first place because they, they were worried about the type of backlash that could potentially happen. As it turned out, the strikes were overwhelmingly popular. You're talking like 72% of the public in Oklahoma, which is like hardly a labor bastion, supports the strike way higher even in a place like West Virginia. So it, it worked out, but that really took a lot of concerted effort by organizers to both reach out to um, parents and students doing things like feeding working class students ahead of time, hand delivering meals so that uh, students who depended on the free breakfast and lunch could be fed the next day. You know, these small type of actions really made a big difference to make it clear who was actually harming students. And then they raised demands uh, on behalf of students as well. And that went a big way towards undercutting this narrative that, you know, teachers were walking out on their students. So let's talk about what you just mentioned in the beginning of 72% of people in Oklahoma supporting this strike. This is a, a very basic point, but I feel like it's one that can't be emphasized enough that particularly in the context of these red states, quote unquote, right? The idea that many people have is that, well, these are fundamentally conservative states. Many of them voted for Trump in the election. Many of them have, you can, it's easy to find people with reactionary social uh, attitudes, et cetera, et cetera. But in the anecdote you just mentioned and throughout the book over and over, you see that through the act of striking, through taking political action, through working people taking political action, they transform what is politically possible around them and people's consciousness turns out to not be static. That even if they hold those reactionary, even if they say on paper they hold those reactionary views in practice, they are coming out and supporting teachers or, or the teachers themselves are willing to go on strike. You, you see in each of the places that you write about in your book this incredible sea change in, in, in political consciousness of the people in these states that happened because a group of workers was willing to go on strike. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think we should talk about it. But even taking a, a bigger step back, in some ways, what the strikes demonstrates was there was already a pre-existing majoritarian sentiment towards a lot of progressive values and policies that just didn't find an expression so I, I, it's true that people got politicized through the strikes, but to be honest, the overwhelming majority of, of folks in all of these states, even according to polls that are just ignored, 
that preceded the strikes were that they want more taxes on the rich to pay for public services, that they support education, that actually a lot of them would support a union if they could actually have the ability to found one in their workplace. So I think in reality, there is and has been a progressive majoritarian sentiment, you know, with, with notable exceptions, but even polls on immigration uh, in these states, which you might expect to be really bad, showed overwhelmingly uh, really a, a sentiment for equal rights. So, so I think the strikes in some ways gave an expression to a pre-existing sentiment that things needed to change. The problem is if you have no outlet at most times for that, then it's just blocked. And in turn, when you do find people taking action uh, in their interest and in doing collective action like an illegal strike, that brings even more to the front uh, the best sort of latent tendencies in people's consciousness, which is contradictory. But you played, you know, you had Trump voters in Arizona who, you know, I think were at very uneven consciousness at best around immigration, going out on strike together with Latino teachers on uh, hearing bilingual speakers and fighting for overwhelmingly Latino students in Arizona, right? And in that process, I think a lot of the uh, latent racism was overcome, at least in part, because of the experience of struggle breaking down a lot of barriers that had uh, existed before. So you're saying two interesting things there. One, that the extent to which these people in these the, the citizens of these states are uh, reactionary is overblown, that there actually is quite a bit of pro- already existing progressive sentiment. It just didn't have an outlet for uh, you know, no, no one was trying to mobilize that uh, progressive sentiment or tap into it in any way. Uh, but then also the second thing is that the, the, the to the extent that those reactionary views did exist, they were overcome through the act of struggle through going on strike. Yeah, and I don't think we should exaggerate the extent to which they were overcome. And it's not just a question of you know racism, which is the most obvious one, but all sorts of political um, views that I might disagree with. For instance, the idea even that the Democrats are going to save us. Uh, that you know the extent to which people overcame that was uneven. They overcame that more in a place like Los Angeles, where the strike had to directly confront the Democrats and was a strike against the Democratic Party. Whereas in the red states, insofar as the main enemy was clearly the Republicans, the Democrats pretended like they were on the side of the strikes and sort of, to their credit, did come out for the most part uh, as a minority in the legislature to give lip service and legitimacy to the strikes, partly because they wanted them to win in the upcoming elections. But again, you, you see that it's really uneven. I don't think we should uh, you know, exaggerate the extent to which people are now fully class conscious, but it shows really the potential for change to happen very quickly. And I think that's in some ways the big story. People in the span of days uh, got a sense of their power and kind of collective agency in a way that absent a strike, it's hard to imagine them achieving. You know, I'm reading this book right now, Classic History of Strikes in America, uh, called Strike by Jeremy Brecker. And he has this description of how it is that working people come to decide to engage in these kinds of militant actions. And he talks about the you know the lightning speed at which people's consciousness is uh, transformed. And I'm reading this, and this is the history he's telling over and over again. And I'm like, really? Did it really work like this? Like, this just seems like too neat and, and too you know, to, just to warp speed of a transformation of people's consciousness. And then I read your book immediately afterwards, and you're describing the exact same thing in these these states where people are, I mean, you're, you're one of the great 
strength of your book is that you interviewed, I think you said over a hundred teachers for the book and you just have these teachers in their own voice talking over and over again about how their consciousness was transformed and how, how, how their, you know, their lives were, were totally reshaped by, uh, these, the strike wave, uh, and their participation. And it's, it's just an incredible thing to read about, uh, that, that kind of transformation that so many people experience. I liked hearing just from people who had never been to union meeting before, who were totally checked out from, you know, organized politics because they felt like it was pointless. It wasn't going to make any difference. Nobody was going to listen to him. And then really the experience of being on strike, taking that risk of being surrounded by tens of thousands of your coworkers who all of a sudden became your best friends. There's this almost like religious uh, effervescence to the, the sense that you weren't alone. You know, people feel alone and trying to get by individually. And then all of a sudden, almost overnight in some cases, people got a sense of their power because they were surrounded by other people taking action with them. And the possibilities then uh, became extremely wide ranging because they saw that they had shut down the state, that the whole state and sometimes the whole country was watching them. And that sense of power is something that is so rare that when you feel it, it just changes you. And you don't want to go back to the way you felt before. And you don't want to go back to feeling alone. And you, you know, you, you want to continue that um, struggle because it feels like for the first time in your life, some people describe it as the first time it felt like that they had a true purpose or true meaning they understood what they were doing. That's really, I, I found that very moving. It's funny. It, it sounds like you're, like you said, describing a religious experience. It sounds like you're describing somebody getting born again or something like baptized and then feeling like on fire for Christ in this new way, you know? Oh, there's an aspect to that, I think, which is true that, you know, there's definitely an overlap in that type of um, fervor. So let's talk about what led to these strikes. I think this is an important question because you you have a whole chapter in the book on this and, and the way that it was described a lot, especially in mainstream media, was like, can you believe how poorly paid these teachers are? Some of them are working multiple jobs. They've got student debt. We're, it's, it's so horrible that we're treating these teachers so badly by paying them so little. And that's an important aspect of this story, of course, but you make the point that it's not just material deprivation, it's not just low wages that leads any group of workers to take action like go on strike. The the story that was told in the media was really um, at best one-sided because you can't really explain the strikes just by low pay because in, in any of these states, for instance, teachers are actually amongst the best paid workers. Really, they're at the top of the relative echelon. So if it were just the case that more poverty leads to more strikes, then you'd be seeing tons of strikes across the country all of the time. So one of the things that teachers have um, that other workers don't always is maybe a sense of potential power, at least. Um, Part of that is the leverage you get from having connections with students and parents. So there was a sense that, um, you know, if they took action, there would be Um, support for them. But then part of it is also the gap between what their working conditions were and their uh, desire to be good teachers. I think there's this question really that a lot of people become teachers because they actually want to provide a service and want to do a good job and want to be treated themselves like uh, human beings and not as robots just to feed uh, students into standardized testing. And that kind of creative uh, autonomy of teachers has been so eroded over the last years and decades because of underfunding. Uh, Some people are just overworked 
and the kind of corporate education reform, which has taken away the ability of teachers to even just do their job for the benefit of um, just teaching to the test. This is so challenged, just the basic ability of teachers to feel like their job is being effective, that people were just up in arms. And there was a level of anger, um, particular to teachers then, about the gap between their expectations of what they want and the reality of what they currently had. And I think it's that gap between um, expectation and reality was higher amongst teachers than it was in a lot of other workers who, unfortunately, many times are just resigned to accepting the conditions that they're faced with. So there was the question of deprivation. There's the question of them not being able to fulfill what they had set out to do as teachers in the first place, like the, like provide this service of education, as you mentioned, and make a difference in their students' lives. Uh, but there's also just a, a question for any group of workers, which is that there needs to be a sense that their expectations are raised. There needs to be a sense that they could do something about their predicament, right? Uh, it, it's not just enough to be pissed off about what you're facing every day at work, but you have to believe that in taking action, you could actually change that situation. So can you talk about that that aspect of the strike for these teachers? Yeah, well, that really, in some ways, is the big block for collective action for workers generally. It's really that sense of lack of power and lack of uh, possibility for change is really what's blocking and remains blocked uh, remains an obstacle for you know working people generally. So the part of the story then is West Virginia when it popped off and really captured the imagination and attention of teachers across the country. That strike almost overnight for some people broke the sense that nothing could be done. One of the really exciting things that happened is that when I interviewed different organizers or even just rank and file teachers of like in Arizona or Oklahoma about why they got involved, why they started organizing, or why they decided to go on strike. They said, well, look, they did it in West Virginia. Uh, we could do it here, too. And so that sense of a positive example broke the spell of powerlessness. In West Virginia, it, it took longer to do that because there wasn't a, a recent example that people could just point to and be like, look, we can do that. And so it took a lot more organizing, it took months of organizing on the ground um, through build-up actions to erode that sense of powerlessness and give people a a glimpse that if we all go out together, we can buck the law and win. Uh, but that really, yeah, it took months. You also write in the book about the impact of the Bernie Sanders campaign on multiple levels, both in raising people's expectation of, of what can be fought for in politics and what kind of goods and services and, and you, know, you know things like healthcare and whatever that, that people deserve in society, uh, and then also just the fact that it cohered people around uh, left-wing critique uh, in, in society, a credible one, one that they thought could win. Uh, can, can you talk about that specifically in West Virginia? Yeah, so I think this is running on two parallel lines. One is Bernie won every single county in West Virginia. This is a really big deal. It's funny because when the media talked about West Virginia, they mentioned that Trump won every county, which is true. But Bernie also went every county. And so what that means is the basic critique of the status quo and that the billionaires are really at the root of our problems resonated and was uh, put forward amongst, you know, a large amount of people in West Virginia in 2015 and 2016. And that, I think, legitimized the type of politics that the strike ended up taking action on. But then more specifically for a narrower group of teachers 
who were really energized and organized through the Bernie campaign. It was in the process of the Bernie campaign itself that they organized uh, collectively a a new DSA chapter in Charleston, and they met other teachers who similarly had a democratic socialist critique of capital and kind of a democratic socialist vision for how things could be better and why they needed to get better. So the Bernie campaign was really instrumental in the general sense, and then also in the more particular case of bringing together some of the core activists that ended up leading the strike. So they were, came together around the Bernie campaign, and then what was the next step for them? Many people don't know, but what I try to talk about in the book is the West Virginia strike really, in an organized way, begins with a study group in the summer of 2017 of a couple DSA socialist teachers uh, led by Emily Comer and Jay O'Neill. And they read a great book, Jane McAlevey's No Shortcuts, which is sort of a strategy uh, manifesto for working people to think about how you build power. And they tried to study the past strikes that had worked. They looked at the 2012 strike. Uh, Jay O'Neill in particular read your book, Mike. I don't know if this was a conscious or unconscious uh, lead-in to get a plug for your book. I on, was not trying to set that but up. But I did for it anyway, record. so it's fine. <laughs> but it's it's actually accurate. So Jay read your book about the 2012 strike because there was this core group of organizers who were trying to learn the lessons of the past. And they they read Jane's book. They read your book. The Labor Notes book too, right? The lessons from the Chicago Teachers Union that Labor Notes put out a few years ago. Right. That was the third book that really was uh, very important for people's uh, sense of how we're going to do what we need to do. And uh, you write at length in the book about the importance of social media in West Virginia and elsewhere. And this is an important discussion. You know, a few years ago, around the time of Occupy and the uh, Tahrir Square in Egypt and, and a bunch of places where there were social upheaval was starting to kick off. There was this this whole discussion of use of Twitter and other social media platforms as being central to these uprisings. And then there was a kind of pushback for a while, like, well, actually, the you know, this is overblown or you can't create the kinds of social ties that you need to create in order to, uh, you know, the long longstanding and deep social ties that you need to create in order to have a real uprising and a real you know, grassroots movement and of course now we're in a, after the 2016 election we're we're far closer to people uh, talking a lot about the dangers of social media but your discussion of the role of social media in these teacher strikes is probably the most nuanced one that I've read about this you talk about the centrality of things like facebook groups in cohering uh, people statewide to engage in these kinds of actions. And then you also talk about uh, both the differences in how these social media groups were run in different states and uh, you know, the impact that had on the strike and sort of why social media was both necessary and how it was not enough for all of these different strikes. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of skeptical of the role, uh, potential of social media before these strikes. You know, I, I, I would have probably dismissed the utility of them uh, offhand. But to be honest, the, the, the reality was these were statewide strikes that were initiated and coordinated to a significant extent over these Facebook groups that went viral. That's a big deal. That's, that's new. I think that one of the things that the Facebook groups did is they changed the relationship of forces uh, between the rank and file and the union leadership because it created a, a platform through which rank and file activists 
could, even if they didn't have large numbers at first, uh, get the word out, cohere people, and didn't have to rely as much as uh, they otherwise might have on the official union channels. So it really allowed them to speed up a process that otherwise might have taken uh, a lot longer, including years. That being said, the limitations of just relying on social media also became evident, particularly in the Oklahoma strike, where the organizers really uh, over-relied on Facebook and just trying to keep that as the main sphere of uh, mobilizing and communication. And they didn't use social media to uh, start the kind of one-on-one workplace organizing that ended up being so crucial for the West Virginia and Arizona strikes and strikes in general to uh, succeed. So on the one hand, I do think it changes things. You know, it's it's not like this is just a, um, a new medium that does the same thing that past mediums have done. But you need to be aware of both that power and then the limitations of it um, as far as building strikes in particular. It does seem the, like the case that there's no way that the any of these strikes would have happened if it weren't for the ability of teachers to connect through the Facebook groups in particular that you cite. Yeah, it's certainly hard to imagine the strikes developing as they did without social media. You know, the kind of volcanic, um, relatively spontaneous dynamic. Without social media, it's really doing something like a statewide strike with so little infrastructure uh, would have been very difficult. The, The flip side, though, again, is in the absence of building a deeper infrastructure, it's harder to sustain the power after the strike. And that's a whole other conversation. But it's, it's an, again, another limitation of social media is that it doesn't force you to build the type of organization that in turn can create a kind of lasting movement. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. You have quite a bit in the book about the union leaders in all of these states who most of the time are not particularly happy that there is all of this energy for building a strike and social media is able to connect thousands and tens of thousands of teachers across geographic lines, vast, vast swaths of, of these big states uh, that can kind of do an end run around those leaders and connect people who, who are ready to take action and don't agree with those union leaders who don't want to see uh, strikes happen uh, it's sort of like the dynamic that is true of, of you know electoral politics generally like we wouldn't have a bernie sanders candidacy he wouldn't have gotten the kind of traction that he has if it weren't for social media allowing us to break through the you know mainstream media's uh, depiction of a figure like bernie like it it, it, is, it allows us to uh, avoid the the official channels and the distorting effect that those official channels have in in discussing these kinds of issues yeah i think that's right so where does the strike wave go from here yeah, so since the red state strikes in 2018, the movement has continued to spread across the country. So you've seen it spread to Los Angeles, Denver, Oakland, Washington. Just a few weeks ago, you had walkouts in North Carolina and South Carolina. I was just in Portland last week. We had 25,000 educators uh, mobilized. Uh, Las Vegas just called, authorized a strike. So there's no indication that the teacher strike wave is dampening down in any way. There's every indication that it's continuing and deepening. And that's really exciting. And it also poses all sorts of challenges because in a context, for instance, like a blue state, the legal uh, parameters look different. So you don't have the same political vacuum that led 
a small group of radicals like in West Virginia or Arizona to have this totally disproportionate impact. So the weight of the Democratic Party and the old union leaders is actually heavier um, in a lot of these blue states. And so that's created distinct challenges, distinct rhythms. But I think the big um, question is not just continuing the strikes and trying to support them, which is crucial, but also trying to think through what is the political expression that these strikes need. Because as important as strikes are, there's only so much you can do with them uh, in the absence of you know, political power. And ultimately the solutions to the crisis of public education uh, are gonna require like a pretty dramatic shift in priorities of state policy. And that can be done in various ways. One thing I think in California is very exciting is that UTLA, the teachers union there, is spearheading a statewide campaign to refund um, public education by going after the billionaires through reforming uh, the tax structure. And so you can imagine initiatives like that catching elsewhere, as posing a real political uh, economic alternative to the status quo. But ultimately, I think even on a national level, you know, as long as you have corporate politicians, whether it's Democrats or Republicans in charge of things, you're not gonna fix public education. So it raises the urgency of having a mass campaign of educators and unionists for Bernie Sanders because you know, it's this really amazing moment we're in where for the first time you have a convergence of a strike wave, uh, the growth of a socialist movement in DSA, and the possibility of electing a democratic socialist to presidency. You, know, you don't get this uh, sort of perfect storm of class struggle very often. And so it creates this huge opening for really winning millions of people to an organized movement uh, for fundamental change. And I think the Bernie Sanders campaign on a national level is really crucial because it can connect then this more local and statewide struggle with a national uh, movement that can you know really transform radically the United States. Eric, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. You can buy Eric's book, Red State Revolt, The Teachers' Strikes and Working Class Politics at versobooks.com or wherever you get books. The vast majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com. 